Welcome back to Clear the Air. This week's episode features Fred Joyle. Fred is an author, speaker, entrepreneur, business advisor, and co-founded one of the most successful dentist referral services in the country, 1-800-DENTIST. Previously, he has written two books on marketing, dabbled in stand-up and improv comedy, acted in bad movies, and excellent TV commercials. His latest book titled Super Bold, From Underconfident to Charismatic in 90 Days, is an Amazon and Wall Street Journal bestseller. Fred even once beat Sir Richard Branson in chess and was also a question on Jeopardy. And it does not stop there. He is an avid cyclist, a below average tennis player, and an even worse golfer. We hope you enjoyed today's episode with Fred Joyle. And here's your host, Phil Irvine. Fred, thank you for, for joining us on Clear the Air. Appreciate you, you taking time out of your busy schedule. Um, you know, I have an extremely fascinating background. Um, you know, we'll get to a lot of different aspects and highlights of your career. But I, I guess to kick this off here, you know, looking at your your profile, um, you know, after you graduated from from college, you kind of started your career in the advertising space, which is what RPA, you know, RPA plays in. Um, you know, would be really curious for you to touch on your initial career as a copywriter and creative designer and, you know, what attracted you to that field and, you know, any any major memories or kind of lessons learned from that that experience in the first part of your career? Uh, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. It took me eight years to finish college and I had just knocked around doing every kind of job just to make money. And, you know, I, I did bartending and waitering and stuff like that, but I painted houses and worked for the post office, uh, laid carpet, sold frozen meat door to door, sold payroll systems. And it was all just to eat. Um, and then I walked into an ad agency and I thought, wow, these are my people, right? I, I have found something I could do and get excited about every day. And fortunately for me, they were teaching creative advertising writing at a night school that was taught by working creative directors in Los Angeles. And so I, because I, I tried to get a job and they said, we're not going to give you a job. You, you don't know how to write. Uh, and so, but after six months of this school, I got a, got a job immediately because I learned how to write advertising. But what happened is all of these businesses that I worked for informed my ability to write advertising because I always had the, the client in mind that he or she was trying to sell their stuff not just you know make cool ads for me or cool ads for them that didn't do anything uh and so i really spoke their language and then i got because i had finally found my space i got really bold in pitching uh, you know like i because you can have great ideas but if you don't sell them to the client they don't do them they don't they don't go for the campaign uh, and so I got really ballsy in terms of just really acting out the spots and pitching them hard. And, and, and as a junior copywriter, they loved me. They would bring me into these high level meetings with these heavyweight clients. Cause I was like the, the young energetic nutcase that would, would uh, sell the campaign for them. And, and so th that was my first breakthrough into seeing the power of boldness, which I was not bold normally. I was a very shy person growing up and very underconfident and stuff. But suddenly I realized I could 
you know, elevate my game considerably in advertising just by being that way. And also just by being creative, you, you know, what they taught me was, you know, you can write crazy ideas, big, crazy ideas. We can dial them back. But if you write average ideas, now we got to dial them up so that they're mm-hmm. interesting. And so that became my long-term MO. It's like start with no holds barred, no censorship, no editing, no limits, no bad ideas, and then see what I see what was in there that could actually be done that might actually work. So that in, in a roundabout way, that's the 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 really the arc of the story eventually started one eight hundred dentist and uh, created a business based on advertising that I created and you know was way more successful than I ever imagined. Yeah, a little bit, you know, before we uh, before we move to one eight hundred dentist, I, I guess I'm kind of curious what what gave you the confidence to to have conviction when you were trying to sell some of your ideas at the agency? Was it you know, a lot around here, we, you know, we always go back to does the data prove out our point of view or our thought on a topic or issue? And if we have that, that gives us confidence. But I don't know with with you, because there there wasn't as much, you know, data accessible because of the, the digital explosion back then. You know what? Just curious, what, what kind of gave you the confidence to to step into some of those rooms, even as a junior copywriter to have conviction to sell your ideas? I think it was because of the feedback loop. I, I because a, a lot of these clients they didn't care about clicks or immediate sales. They were, it wasn't a direct marketing client. It would be a bank or it would be Oro Wheat Bread, uh, and and so they were they were just looking to to do branding as much as anything. They were looking to distinguish themselves. So. If I could come up with something unique enough, that that's what they would go for. Uh, in, in, and it, it, and I would be always playing off of their response to the ideas yeah. and also my creative director's response to the ideas because I'd pitch four or five things and he'd, no, no, oh, wait a minute, what would you just say? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and then I would expand on it and I get, I get good at expanding my creative ability. Yeah day by day and and pitch by pitch and just just you know continue to develop those skills and then even when we when I was writing with my business we would we would bring in a whole everybody from the business who wanted to pitch an idea for a commercial for us they could do it and I would say that whatever you want doesn't doesn't don't worry about if we, if we can execute it or not I just want to hear it um yeah. and they'd come up with some interesting stuff and sometimes all it would be would be a great line. The whole spot would be ridiculous, right? Like worthless. You'd listen to it and you go, first of all, that's not, you can't do that in 30 seconds. It's going to take 45 to shoot it, right? Mm-hmm. And you we can't use it. But the way you said that one thing, I really like that. I'm taking that. <laughs> uh, so that's bouncing around of ideas, really learning to collaborate, bouncing stuff back and forth. Now, the, the art director, a lot of times would would say, that's that's the line that's it because they're inexperienced they they know they maybe can't come up with it but when they hear it they know because then they know i can turn i i have a visual compliment for that i have a way to i have a way to to execute that either in a in a print ad or in a in a 
TV commercial. I have a way to execute that because you've sparked something in me. That's the verbiage I can work with. Yeah, no, it's funny you 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 bring up that example kind of toward the the end there. Um, when we were actually conceptualizing the logo for this podcast, um, or not just the logo, but the the name for the podcast as well, we had four or five variations, and just seeing the text of the names, like we had we had certain connotations and affinities, and it was funny. Clear the air was actually our number three or fourth option. But once we saw it visualized into what we ultimately came up with, with the, the, you know, the acronym CTA and the clear yep, the air yeah. that the team collectively said that, you know, that's it. That's, that's what we need to go with. So it, I, I think to your point, you know, bringing ideas, whether it's copy or a vision to life is a lot of times a lot different than just seeing a description on paper and, and trying to make a decision based off of that. Well, yeah. And that, that it, that's, you know, that if you do this enough, there's a moment where it clicks. We, you go, you just said it CTA and everybody goes, Oh, that's it. That's it. Right. That's what you're going for. And they, this, this has happened a million times over in the ad business. And it's also, there's been a million fails because it didn't happen. It was like, Oh, we gotta, we gotta pitch something. And we, you know, we gotta sell the hell out of it because uh, right now we're not we haven't gotten there's no magic. Yeah, great. So let so let's yeah let's switch um, gears here. So one eight hundred dentist. I think for the uh, um, you know I it's self explanatory to the majority of people. But can you maybe describe exactly you know what it was when you first started the business and. I'm also curious, uh, you know, why the dental industry, like what attracted you to it? Had you been working with some of those guys prior or, yeah, just curious, you know, how you kind of conceptualize the idea there. Well, there's, there's two things that were involved in that. Let's, let's go to why dentistry. Uh, and this, you got to picture the eighties. So step one is I had a really unusual dentist. Um, he was a, what, what they would call a holistic dentist now but he was just one of, and he said we got to get all this metal out of your mouth it, it, it's it's killing you like it's leaching mercury into your body and everything like that and the ada still won't admit that 35 years later okay it changed my health but i had this thought it's like how would anybody find this guy um if they were looking for this kind of guy and coincidentally while I was working the ad business, a friend of mine had registered 800 dentists when 800 numbers first came out in 79. And it had a ring to his house for six years because he had this flash of brilliance like that this could be something. So he came to me and said, I think you, you work in advertising. I think you could turn this into a business. And I was young and dumb enough to think I could actually pull it off. So another friend of mine was quitting his job as a stockbroker. He says, I can't stand to lose money for people anymore. It's taking my soul away. We got to do something. Let's do this together. And so we had to invent every aspect of the business. I knew how to write advertising. I knew how to write radio and TV commercials. And I had some sense of how to buy media, but everything else. We had to create a call center. We had to create call center scripts. We had to create the sales pitch. We had to do all the other stuff you know, having employees, renting space, 
having contracts, all of this stuff. And we did everything wrong. You know, we're writing our own contracts because it's too expensive to use a lawyer and stuff like that. That'll bite you in the ass. But we stuck with it for six months. It took us six months to find 20 dentists in LA to go along with this because we had no idea what to tell them was going to happen. We just said, we'll give you all of the people to call from your zip code, which was a, a model that we had to change. It was actually a failed structural model. We had to pivot radically from that mm-hmm. after about three years. But we got 50 phone calls the first day just off running some radio ads and that I had written. And, and we said, oh, holy crap, this, this, what we're telling the dentist might actually be true. <laughs> this is going to work. <laughs> and so we just we poured every penny we had into media which we bought ourselves. We all, we always bought all our own media ourselves. People would come and pitch us and say, oh, we can do it better. We would actually give them, give them a try a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Three times we took it, we took it back from the agency. Two times they just gave it back. They said, we can't buy like you guys. And I'm like, mm-hmm. we know that's what we tried to tell you. And so, but it, it was, you know, I, I call it a series of survivable mistakes is how we built the business. Just step-by-step step, trying new stuff, learning, but with this thing in mind that that if if the if we could make the customer win, which is the dentist and the patient happy and make money doing it, we had a business. But it had to be a business that we wanted to go to every day. So we had to create we created culture long before people created culture in their business, use the term at all, because we had had terrible bosses. We had had crappy jobs. We had worked at horrible places. And we said, we're not recreating that. We want everybody to want to come to work every day. And that's what we created. Uh, just just to sum it up in, in the quickest way, my last week in the business, because I sold it five years ago, I celebrated three 25-year employees. They had spent their entire adult life working for me, yeah. working for me and my partner. What were... um. You know, either between those three or others, what I guess, you know, what were some of the anecdotal um, thoughts or or evidence that you heard from your employees about why, you know, why they 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 loved being there, coming to work, um, and why you why you know why do you think you had that that such great tenure with with your employees, like like anything specific you guys kind of you know implemented about the culture? I think that part of it was there was one thing. Nobody got to yell at anybody, right? That wasn't the work environment. We had had psychotic bosses growing up, my partner and I both. Uh, and it was like, what, this, that's, that's, that's a, a terminal behavior. You will, uh, terminable behavior. You yell at somebody, you're out. But we also grew people because we had a call center and then, but we would constantly recruit from the call center for customer service, for sales, for, for every department, we'd start there with the job description. And eventually in the office, the, if the, on the office door, there'd be a sticker on a lot of these people's doors that said, I started in the call center. Mm-hmm. So people knew it. And the other thing was, they knew this and you know, that we had their backs, that we were going to take care of them, that the customer wasn't always right. And if, if a customer called and cursed them out, some dentist got all pissed off and decided to just chew out, you know, with the wrong language, chew out my customer service person, mm-hmm. they were off. They get kicked right off. 
and yeah. call me up and say, I'm sorry I did it. I'll, 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 I'll apologize to the person. I said, yes, you will, but you're still off because nobody gets to treat my people that way. And nobody talks to my people that way. I don't need you. I need them. Mm-hmm. And when people knew that I was going to do that and Gary was going to do that, when people know that, they go to the wall for you. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because, you know, a lot of agencies face those types of or those discussions happen sometimes where, you know, sometimes we question are certain clients the right fit for the agency and not just obviously financially it has to be the right fit, but then also uh, values is it a values fit? Like, do their values align with our values? And if if they don't, is there going to be a disconnect there or maybe a perception issue to, you know, people that we want to attract to the company or people that we want to appeal to? And that's yeah, that's that's interesting that you you I mean, you guys just flat out fired customers if they if they weren't treating your employees the right way. That's that's interesting. That was that something that you guys kind of instituted from the early stages or was that was that just something over time that you learned was just something that you had to do or was effective? I, you know, I think we we knew it from our number one priority, which was to create a great place to work. Instinctually, we knew that was an element of it. And, and also my partner was really personality wise. He was really like that. He never raised his voice at anybody. And 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 I was the aggressive one. So he would say, wow, that's unacceptable. And I, you know, I go, I know. And that guy's off. He is mm. so off this program. And he would say, yeah, you know what? You're right. And eventually, they wouldn't let me call the guy. <laughs> the customer service <laughs> people go, no, no, we got it. We got it. And it's like, no, no, give me his number. No, we're not giving you his number. Because they know I was going to I was going to scorch the guy. But 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 it was it was that that sense that that was how we wanted to to spend our days but also and then of course years later i see richard branson say you take care of your employees they'll take care of your customers yeah and i just said uh yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) the other interesting thing you said is and, and let me know if i'm interpreting this the right way but you said a lot of you know some of your tenured employees they had sticker outsides their doors saying i started in the call center so was that um was that a way to provide you know hope for some of the uh newer or entry-level employees that their careers could evolve and expand to becoming uh maybe sales managers marketing managers uh, i guess was that was that part of the the thought process with 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 doing something like that or like yeah i think but Part of it was knowing that there was a career arc. It wasn't just a call center job. And they had had some of them two or three call center jobs for various, you know, the cable company or something like that. And they, these were hellish experiences for them. And when they saw us and they saw the way we, we, we grew people and the way we treated people, they responded to that. We had 50% uh, uh, less turnover than the industry average in the call center, wow. which is wow. which was important to us because there's there's nothing more expensive than the wrong person on the phone mm-hmm. for us because they were creating our product. They were creating right. a potential patient with every yeah. single phone call. And the difference between them converting 20 a day and 17 a day over the course of a year is huge. Yeah, yeah. 
just out of curiosity, uh, did 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 you guys ever? So was your was your call center located in Los Angeles or the United States? Was it? Yeah. Um, did you guys ever consider outsourcing at all for you know financial reasons all or the cost time. reasons or? And 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 it just it didn't make any sense to us. It was ex an expensive call center, but again. We were. It wasn't a customer service center. It was. It was essentially sales, uh, because we were spending millions of dollars in advertising to make the phone ring. They had to be good at converting, and half of the conversion was to understand how to be compassionate to the person, and then also understand American geography. Mm -hmm. This was the linchpin of it, because people would go like. Yeah, I'm in Cleveland, but you know, I'm north of the river, so I don't want anybody south of the river. And you tell that to somebody in Nicaragua or the Philippines, they don't know what the hell you're talking about. But you, you tell it to somebody in the US, they go, Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Gotcha, uh, gotcha. Um, and and so that that was, you know, people would say, Oh, we could we could take your call center off site and he's gonna cut your cut your costs for the call center in half. Yeah, and I said, until I go out of business, that would really save me some money. Uh, <laughs> That makes complete sense. And just from my past uh, experience and working at a couple of different businesses, I've seen where it makes sense where it's more, you know, repeatable tasks where they're not as customer facing or sales oriented, as you said. But with your business model, it it, it seems like that decision made made uh, complete sense there. So I guess, you know, one thing before we get to your new book that I, you know, wanted to touch on here, ask you about is uh I see you had a previous book called Everything is Marketing, the Ultimate Strategy for Dental Practice Growth. And just out of, you know, I, I would love for you to touch on, you know, a, as an end consumer, a lot of people, at least in my network, they see going to the dentist as kind of a necessary evil just to make sure their their teeth stay healthy, they stay on regimen. Um, I guess what were maybe some of the the key differentiators that you saw with dental practices of how they of how they looked at marketing to become more attractive and appealing to their consumers versus others. Like just, just really curious to hear, like what, what were some like, like really best practices that you saw in that arena? Well, the, the whole premise was that everything that you do in the practice from the website to the first phone call to, to every sight, sound, taste, touch, and, and smell has an impact on case acceptance, the patient accepting the treatment that the de dentist is recommending because in her professional opinion, that's what you need to keep your mouth healthy. And people have a huge disconnect between their oral health and their overall health. They treat their mouth like it's a garbage disposal, right? And mm -hmm. with, with, with disposable and replaceable components in it. Um, but they're finding more and more that when you, you don't have good oral health, everything else is a problem, which makes sense. It is the gateway into your body, right? And it's <laughs> this instant access to your bloodstream and everything. But I would tell these dentists, you know, it's not just your clinical skills. They expect you to have decent clinical skills or maybe even excellent clinical skills. You went to dental school, but what's your chair side manner? What, what, are, what do they experience from your people? And when you're apprehensive, your cognitive skills are impaired, right? You can't process anything except, oh, the cost, right? Uh, and well, that sounds terrible. And where am I going to get money like that? Um, well, 
let's talk about all the other dumb shit you spend money on uh, that doesn't that won't affect every smile, every kiss, every meal, every conversation for the next 30 years. Right. Your mouth and your teeth will to shift their mindset to say that, you know, because dentists would say they should want great dentistry. Well, they should. But anytime you say the word should, you're making a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> it, you're you're <laughs> saying I, I refuse to accept human nature. This is human nature. We need to be yeah. talked into stuff that's important for us. We need to be talked into going to college, saving money, exercising, <laughs> all of those things that are important to do, eating right, all important to do. We're going to be talked into it. The fun stuff we don't have to be talked into. We don't have to be talked into buying a Mercedes. We want a Mercedes. Yep. <laughs> we just got to we have we have to pretend that we don't want to buy it so we don't pay too much. That was my challenge. Is I sold one of the hardest products there was is dentistry. And people when people complain to me, it's like, oh, my product's really hard to sell. And I say, I don't think so. <laughs> Try selling dentistry for 30 years. Yeah, yeah. No, that's why I mean, um, the fact that you were able to build it to uh a billion dollars in revenue is 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 uh in um incredible um aggregate and aggregate in, in a billion aggregate, yeah yeah let's make yeah yeah so, what not a billion dollars a year or i, I would be i would be on an island somewhere that i owned <laughs> for sure for sure you know i'm gonna get I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure i get the title right here you have this new book out um super bold from underconfident to charismatic in in 90 days and yeah you know well, I, it's, I it's it was, critical to say the d at the end because people go he's written a book about the super bowl no, super bold, as super in bold. boldness, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not the uh, not the uh, not the Rams Super Bowl that they just won at SoFi Stadium. Yeah, let's make sure we're cl uh, clear to the to the audience here. Yeah, no, I thought it was interesting. You know, you mentioned this earlier too. You were kind of a a shy kid growing up, and you know now you 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 built and and exited a successful business. You did some stand up comedy. Uh, improv, spoken to large audiences, and then you had to call out about some some bad movies that you were in. I I, I might want to touch on that later, just to <laughs> out of curiosity to see that. But um, what drove you to write this book? And I, I'd love for you to touch on some of the key, you know, key takeaways that the audience can have as a preview of what you kind of try to touch on here to to you know to change the confidence of everyday individuals here. Years ago, I was brought into this. This, this weekend training course for young people that was put on by some friends of mine, some the sons of a good friend of mine, actually. And they were teaching high school kids and college kids how to manage their time, their money, uh, their relationships, and how to do goal setting. And it was all stuff that they didn't learn in school. And then they would, they would bring mentors in that were friends of, of, their dads to come in and, and talk about our experiences and our various businesses. And so I had done a, uh, a presentation for these, these kids. And one of my life lessons was that boldness is a superpower. And if you can just not be the one to stop you, you can do amazing things in life. And they all said, well, they, they started to get it. And I said, look, I don't care how shy any of you are. I was more shy than you growing up. I said, I had to figure out the hard way to, to change that for myself. But all I found was great things happening on the other side. Nothing but reward and reward and reward for boldness and nothing but regret from my shyness and my hesitance and my underconfidence. So I figured it out over many years. 
And they said, yeah, but, but how, how, how do you, how do you, what do you do? Cause it's not like, Oh, just be more confident. That doesn't work. So I figured out how I did it. And then I wrote this book with a systematic way that anyone can take themselves from wherever they are, however shy or underconfident, or they can be pretty bold, but they just go, look, I want to be a lot bolder to how you do that, how you systematically step-by-step step, increase that. And that's, so that's what prompted me to write the book is that there was always an interest ever since I talked to those kids. Cause I did it for like three or four years in a row with those kids and, and the demand was there. And I said, look, I, I got to write the book. And I, you know, and it's, you reach a certain point in your life where you say, what's the most important thing that I learned and how can I pass that on? And so that's what this is to me. That's what, this is my purpose in life is to help as many people as possible chase their dreams by being a bolder and bringing their full self to the world. No, that's fantastic. Um, a theme with this show, the last few episodes has been, you know, as I've talked to a few leaders is how to deal with uh, failure or, um, or curveballs that are thrown your way. When you may, you may have an idea you're pitching, you may have a project you're trying to get off the ground. You know, I think because, you know, you spoke to when you were a copywriter, what gave you confidence was positive reinforcement. But I wonder in your book, do you touch on how to turn negative reinforcement or negative responses into opportunities as opposed to just, you know, folding, putting your tail between your legs? And I'm just curious if, if that's if that's maybe part of what you touch on is like how to deal with, with roadblocks in, in life, you know? I think that's one of the things that advertising taught me, and, and this is more in reflection now, but you got to the good idea by writing a bunch of bad ones. I mean, it was a, it was a stairway of failures. You had to get the bad ideas out of your head and out of your mouth before you got to the good ideas. It seemed like that was the, just the way. So we'd be there bouncing ideas and they, no, that's stupid. That's ridiculous. That'll never work. That makes no sense. I know, but I had to say it, right? And, you know, just write 40 headlines and they all suck. And then all of a sudden you start to make some sense. You get beyond the routine, the mundane, the boring, the inaccurate, and you start to dial it in and you start to get clever and you start to get unique ideas and so that process of failure became an mo for me and that's what we took into the business it's like we failed at this what's the information mm -hmm. from the failure bold people either instinctively know knew that or learned it that failure is just information to get better when they walk up to an attractive woman and try to meet her and they end up saying the wrong thing and get shut down, they, they turn around and say, what could I have said better? They don't go slit their wrists, right? Or never talk to another girl again. They don't do that. They say, I, I am trying to get better. And the only way I'm going to get better, the only way you get better at any, it's like, it's so crazy how we, we go, we approach work and stuff like that, like it's not something you're supposed to get better at for the next 40 years. If I handed you a guitar and said, here, all you need is a guitar and you'll be able to play, you would yeah. think I'm an idiot, right? If I, if you said, I'm going to buy a guitar because that's all I need to learn to do is just buy one to learn how to play it, you wouldn't expect to know how to play the guitar when you got it. 
But we expect to be good at relationships and interactions and selling. It takes years to refine these skills, to, to, to make powerful connections with people, to lead people. I, I became a better CEO every year and I'm yep. still learning to be a better leader now. And I yep. coach leaders and as I coach them, I get better and they get better. All it, It's just a commitment to never ending improvement. Yeah. And, and, and which is failure. It means you're, you, you're, if anything worth pursuing, you have a good chance of failing at, especially no. First, try. Yeah, I think it's so funny um, where you took that answer towards the tail end because I was, while you were talking, I was thinking about just my my career path, which was partially influenced by my first career was in tech and tech project management, and you were incentivized to be either black and white with how you approached a project or a discussion. But as I I went to grad school five years later. Uh, worked in strategy and now I'm in advertising and yeah now I've kind of evolved where when I go into a discussion I'm not expecting somebody to completely agree with me like it like conversations are are naturally going to evolve where people may agree with bits and pieces of what you're presenting or what you're saying but um, honestly I I take more positive reinforcement if somebody tries to build upon my idea versus just saying yeah I agree with you like I feel like they weren't listening or they weren't engaged with what I was presenting. And so it's it's interesting you kind of mentioned that, that, you know, you became a better CEO every every year because you just learn more. So um, where can people find your your book um, just for the audience here? It's on Amazon. Uh, it's not in bookstores because I self-publish. Uh, so it's on Amazon. It's in hardcover. It's in Audible and it's me reading it and it's in Kindle. Uh, and there are exercises that are in the book that if you read the, or listen on in the digital form, you can download the exercises from fredjoyle.com. Uh, the most exciting thing right now that I'm doing is I've launched a two-day workshop, a Super Bowl transformational workshop uh, in June in Los Angeles, where I'm going to vastly accelerate people's growth in their confidence and skill. It it will transform them in two days and they will come away with the tools to ever increase their boldness from then on. They'll they'll get a, a full experience of it and then a taste of how to do it and then a, a systematic way to approach it. So uh, people were saying like, I, I like the book, but I'm not doing the exercises. And I said, well, you have to do the exercises. So like, it's like, you can't read a book on playing a guitar and expect to get really good at it. You're going to have to actually practice. Right, so it's right. the same thing. So people have been saying, and I've done a lot of different kinds of workshops. I just did a, a two-day speaking workshop for people. And so I know how to get people in their discomfort zone and and work with it and and have breakthroughs so that's that's what i'm doing now but you can download the first chapter of the book for free on fredjoyle.com uh read the book if if you're really ready to go uh you can get on the phone with me for a half an hour and talk about how the workshop would work for you or if you want me for a keynote or anything like that obviously i'm passionate about this topic and it's, it would be good for any sort of team to be bolder. Thank you for joining us here. And 
Um, what was maybe the best bad movie that you had an appearance in? I saw you that was called out in your profile that you. <laughs> uh, well, it was bad for two reasons. It was called Gentleman Bandit, uh, and uh, and it was a bank robber movie, and and as and the head villain became a heroin addict or went back to being a heroin addict before the movie finished. And, uh, and then at, at, cert at a certain point, I had to dub his voice because by, by the time he came back in to do the, the dubbing that you'd have to do on some scenes, his voice had completely changed from shooting up all the time. Um, but I backed the movie and I lost every penny of that money. Uh, did you back that specific movie or another movie? I backed that specific movie, and oh. it was the same year as the as the dot com crash. Um, and so, at the Cannes Film Festival, which is also a, a selling festival for international films, usually small independent films make all their money overseas. That one year, nobody bought anything because of the doc. They were all multimedia companies in Europe and and overseas, so. They, they were having a dot-com crash going on at the same time. So nobody, they, and you don't get to come back the next year because now it's an old gotcha. movie. Gotcha. So it was like amazingly bad timing. But, you know, oh. I, I took the experience of making the movie and, and we learned how to make TV commercials incredibly efficiently from the way we shot that movie. Uh, and it, so I recouped a million in expertise, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's very expensive tuition uh <laughs> as as the school of hard knocks often is but like you said you took the information and then you applied it to make better commercials in the future so uh, that's so, the, you got you look at it and say what's good about this what 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 how do i mine this for 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 something because i'm not dead so it's I, I still have an opportunity to turn it into something uh and it could be just something to avoid or, you know, there was, there was a hundred lessons in that. I, I can't even begin to list it. You know, never, never back a movie that I didn't write myself, you know, on and on and on. But, uh, you know, and my instincts told me to pull the plug when I, when I was in for 300 grand. But that was the whole sunk cost message, yeah. right? You know, that whole sunk cost fallacy that we, we, also, we all have to get sucked down that hole once or twice before we say, uh, I'm throwing good money after bad here. Uh, yeah, right, right. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, no, Fred, thank you again for for joining us here and and uh, spilling all this great, great knowledge for the audience. And uh, no, definitely would love to uh, love to catch up sometime in the in the future to see if you maybe want to get back into uh, back in any future movies in the in the future. So, <laughs> <laughs> Phil, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Awesome. Thanks again. Hello, my name is Elizabeth Jung, and I oversee the Integrated AdOps team here at RPA. I identify as an Asian American. Specifically, I'm a first-generation Korean American born and raised in Southern California. So what does Asian American and Pacific Heritage Month mean to me? For my family and I, it means resilience, persistence, and determination. The quiet strength and endurance of immigrants who left most, if not all, creature comforts behind, including their spoken language, their loved ones, and more often than not, their careers and educational accomplishments. It's about finding or fighting for our place within a new world, a new beginning where challenges might feel insurmountable at first, and we're pushing against the loneliness of the unfamiliar, 
but it really is about slowly building a new life, finding refuge in the kindness of some, and showing grit in the face of adversity. It's also about compromise and adaptation. Asian American children understand the push and pull of Asian parenting styles versus what they might expect to see through their American-born lens. As we celebrate this month, I take a moment and reflect on the incredible sacrifices of not only my family, but all Asian immigrants and Asian Americans that came before me who have had profound effects and contributions to the overall Asian American experience. This is really the perfect time for me to reflect on my gratitude and lean into this amazing motivation to never let the efforts of all those that came before me go wasted. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening to Clear the Air with RPA. Please remember to leave a rating and a review and hit subscribe to the show on whichever platform you're listening from. If you have a show idea or guest you'd like to hear from, please don't hesitate to reach out to the team at rpa-pod at rpa.com. That's rpa-pod at rpa.com. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next Wednesday with another new episode.